like in the industry, you're just trying to put out the job as fast as you can. And although that quality is an issue, you know that within a few days or a few weeks or a few months, pretty much everything you print is going to be in the trash can or the recycling. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice to feel that you're making things that are going to be treasured for years to come. Print friends, and welcome to the 91st episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and you can find all that on pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where supporters can join at tiers starting at just a dollar a month, and that helps to keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get cool thank yous like stickers, prints, mugs, as well as you'll have access to our brand new feature, bonus content we've titled Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests from materials and processes, business advice, and just general studio nonsense. So, if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check it out through the link in the show notes and hear Tim's chat with today's guest. It's also okay if you don't want to do any of that, because having one more thing in your life that takes money out of your bank account monthly is a super stressful idea. If that's the case, we want you to just listen and enjoy. But if you do get a chance to leave a review, share it with another print friend, that does a world of good as well. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Products like their new line of professional relief inks, beginning with the flagship color Super Graphic Black, developed with artist printer Bill Fick. Formulated with all the working properties artists demand, these light, fast inks roll out consistently, transfer beautifully, and clean up easily with soap and water. So, if you want to take your practice to the next level, head on over to Speedball's website to see where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Mark Atwood, a lithographer, master printer, and founder of The Artist's Press. Mark joined me from his studio in South Africa for a chat about the ways in which we contribute to culture through printmaking and the arts, his roundabout way of going to Tamarind after traveling to Europe, and working in the commercial printing industry, as well as environmental stewardship through green rural living and his green studio, which boats some bees, a little hydroelectric dam, and makes all their own charcoal. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to find out how easy it is being green with Mark Atwood. Hi, Mark. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So I got introduced to your work really through the great episode I got to do with the Printing Girls, who are also based in South Africa. And through that episode, I had an absolutely lovely chat with them. They told me a little bit about the contemporary South African print scene and the historical South African print scene. And they said, if you want to know about printmaking in South Africa, you need to talk to Mark Atwood. Oh, <laughs> <So>. that's, <laughs> that's very nice of them to say that. Yeah. yeah. And since then, I've had a chance to get to know your work a little bit online through your online presence. And I'm really keen to learn more. But... Before I dive into all of my hard-hitting questions, could you please introduce yourself and your work a little bit by letting people know who you are, where you are, and what you do? Okay, sure. So um, I'm Mark Atwood. I have a small studio in South Africa um, that we call the Artists Press. We're located in a rural area about four and a half hours drive from the biggest center of Johannesburg. We started the studio 30 years ago. We, we were For the first 13 years, we were based right in the center of Johannesburg. 
And I started the studio after being a tamarind and coming back to South Africa and wanting to get something going here. At that point, there was no collaborative printmaking studio in Johannesburg. There were some others in other parts of the country, but nothing in, in Joburg itself. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I started printmaking from a printing side of things rather than from an artist side of things. My dad was a printer. He had a print shop. Um, he printed a lot of kind of commercial stuff, um, brochures and books and some invitations to art exhibitions and catalogs for artists. And that's kind of how I got interested in the art side of things. Uh, he had a book, like a big book with black and white photographs in it called the Contemporary Lithographic Workshop that he bought somewhere. And I just saw those pictures of these like hand presses and guys like with big rollers rolling out by hand. And I just thought this is so much more interesting than working on big high speed presses that run at thousands of sheets an hour. And I just became interested in doing hand printing. So that's kind of the, the angle that I come to it from. I'm, I've picked up the art stuff over the years as I've worked with artists, but I, I approach things from a technical point of view. So um, like how to get the best results I can in any given project from a technical side. That's so interesting that your father was a printmaker as well, of course, more of the kind of commercial sort, because it's always interesting to me how people come to printmaking. And in your case, it sounds like it was really a part of your growing up, but then you saw those big stones and really had your head turned another direction a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I guess there's the romance of it, the, like the big stones and the hand presses and, and like the, also there's something about wanting to contribute to a cultural world and, and feeling like you're doing something that people are going to want to keep for a long time. And when, you know, like, like in the industry, you're just trying to put out the, job as fast as you can and although that quality is an issue you know that within a few days or a few weeks or a few months pretty much everything you print is going to be in the trash can or the recycling and yeah i mean it's it's nice to feel that you're making things that are going to be treasured for years to come mm, mm, mm -hmm. so. yeah that is something that i think i don't know if artists always think about when they're making it is that when people make art objects, they often get passed on from person to person through generations. And that art objects really do have a staying longevity. If you look at how we learn about the cultural and emotional legacy from the past, you just have art and you have writings, you know, you have books, and of course books are their own form of art. And and yeah, you know, we have tools and we have architecture, but yeah. getting into that cultural side of things, that emotional side of things, it's really just books and art. So I don't know, maybe sometimes people do kind of feel that pressure that what you're creating, this object could very well have a longer life in some ways than the printer who actually created it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's one of the big things that drives a lot of artists too, is that 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 thing of being part of a kind of a, a, a cultural blood of a society. And yeah, I mean, musicians, I guess, is the same. So many recordings that you listen to, you know the artists are dead, but yet their music is still just as fantastic as if it was written yesterday. And yeah, I mean, I like to think that prints can do the same thing. I definitely think that they can. When yeah. I was working at Davidson Galleries in Seattle, there was a historical print department there. And spending time with those works, you really get the sense of that wonderful intimacy that they have. And you, you hold them in your hand or they kind of stay hidden in a flat file and then you take them out again and you see something different because you, you haven't seen it in a while. It's sort of been kind of hidden away. And I remember spending time with Paul Wunderlich lithographs and you know, looking at the technique, looking at the design, looking at the quality uh -huh. of the actual printing. And, you know, at this point, he's probably been dead 30 years. And here I am kind of hanging uh -huh. out with him, kind of communing with him. There was this moment when Tim and I were dating before we got married. And he was in 
well, he was living in New York and I was living in Seattle and he came to Seattle to visit me. And I think it was for his birthday. And at the time we had these Escher lithographs. And so Tim is a really big MC Escher fan. So uh-huh. I pulled out the lithographs uh-huh. for him to look at. And there in one of the printings, you could see that there had been a scratch in the stone. Wow. And Tim just had this moment of like, he's not <laughs> perfect. Even Escher will like draw and print on a scratch stone. And it was the kind of thing that you never would have seen in reproduction. Oh, it was way lovely. too small of a mark. But it it was this great kind of moment for him. Yeah, and and yeah. so, yeah, like they they do. They, they carry a lot of weight. Absolutely. So you mentioned in passing that you went to Tamarind, and I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, How did it come to be? How did you learn about it? And how did you decide to pack a bag and go pretty far away to continue your lithography training? So, I mean, Tamarind's reputation looms large. And, I mean, even in South Africa, people knew about it. And the, the time when I was interested in going was like, 1987, 88, and South Africa was at that point under a sort of cultural embargo from the rest of the world. And so I, I wrote to Tamarind, and, and actually they wrote back and they said, like, um, well, if you, if you meet all the requirements, we'll consider letting you in. But one of them was they needed me to have had some hand printing experience, and, and there was nowhere in South Africa where I could get that. And so my brother was living in London at the time and I got on a plane and I flew to London and I slept in the lounge of a friend of his for a few weeks and went around and visited print studios in London to see if I could get some experience. And eventually I got a job with a guy who had a studio called Lowick House Print Workshop up in the north of England in the Lake District. And um, he had a big doofa flatbed proofing press. And he was printing editions for artists. And I think he, because I had done an apprenticeship in offset printing, it was kind of relevant to working on this proofing press. And so John had a Charles Brand press that was standing in the corner of the studio and a few stones. And I could work for him during the day. In exchange, he would let me like grain stones and learn how to hand print in the evenings. I did that for a year, and then um, and then I got into Tamarind after when I applied the second time, and um, they said, "Sure, okay, you have relevant experience," but I actually couldn't afford it at that point. So I came back to Southern Africa and I got a job working in a printing plant in Botswana, and um, I worked there. My partner Tamar was um, working with a a rural women's cooperative in, in a village called Matrudi in Botswana. And so I would work in this printing plant in Khabaroni, which was the nearest big town. And um, and we stayed in this, this beautiful village. And so yeah, I worked in this printing plant for a year and then applied again. And so the third time I applied, I managed to get in and had saved up enough money to go. So it was, it's been a been a bit of a slog. So how much time passed between that first application and then actually going? Yeah, I think about three years. At, at that point, Tamarind was divided into, I think the first year was like seven months. It wasn't a whole year. And then the second year, we worked in the pro shop and that was a whole year. So, so I was in Albuquerque for like, I don't know, just under two years through doing all of that. Um, and when I came back to South Africa, I mean, it was the same kind of thing. I just came back to Johannesburg, decided, like, I want to start a studio in the city center and went around trying to, like, find a space. And um, through, like, meeting people that, that actually I'd worked with when my dad was running his business, um, a, a guy in particular, Dumasani Mabaso, who's an artist that I actually later worked with, he told me about a space that was opening up in Johannesburg called the Bag Factory. And it was it was an, an old Hessian bag factory that a art patron had bought to start an artist's cooperative space. And um, I got to meet with them, and they agreed to rent me a studio. And I actually started the business with a second-hand offset proofing press that a friend of, of John Sutcliffe, whom I'd worked for in the UK, 
was getting rid of. Um, it was an, an old press that he was going to scrap if he couldn't give it away. And so I had managed to pack that press up when I lived in the UK and shipped it home to my dad. And it had been sitting in storage for the past two years. And so I started the studio with a with an offset press, and and also like like really on a shoestring. So like I I got a job again working in a printing factory. I would work from six in the morning till lunchtime, and then from lunchtime I would drive through to this new space and I would set up the press and paint the walls and get things going. And the first print I did for an artist, I actually had to ask the artist for money to buy ink and paper. And um, the the artist was Norman Catherine, whom I'm actually still working with. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, a, we, we printed a stone on the offset press. It was the, the, that press was old enough that you could um, drop the bed down low enough and put a stone on it. Um, and, um, to, to be honest, I'm not like mad keen on offset printing. And as soon as I got a chance to get a direct press, I got rid of the offset press and started printing on a, on a proper life press that, that. Um, I could print directly from the paper, from from the stone to the paper. That's so interesting to hear about you shipping that press to your dad and having it stored for you, because it just makes me think about, you know, all the printing shops and all the world that got started because patient parents <laughs> let let their kid keep a press on their property. Yes, uh- because Uli and Sarah, um, who worked for us here for a little bit, they did the same thing in Germany. And Uli's, Uli's parents were storing a press for him. And um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, we're very grateful to have patient parents who'd be <laughs> able to do that for us. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, well, while we're running around trying to find our footing, they just can, yeah, keep our presses for us. And so originally you were wanting to have your studio in the heart of town, which makes sense for sure. So during that time, were you looking for easy accessibility for the artists you were hoping to work with or looking at kind of a central location so you could be a, a player in the art scene? Yeah, I mean, it, it was at a time in South Africa where things were really starting to like open up and Mandela had come out of prison and like there was this real, real feeling of something happening in South Africa. And I wanted to be like in a place where things were accessible and artists from any walk of life would be able to get access to the studio. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was uh, the, the center of town just made so much sense because it was accessible to public transport and um, it had this really nice kind of vibe of being like really in the middle of things. And also being in a studio that was an artist cooperative space, there were 15 or so other studios. So there were other artists working in the area and they would poke their head into the print shop and say, hi, what's going on? And and that was a really nice thing. So quite a few of the artists that, that I'm still printing for actually had studios in the bag factory at the time. It was a really good space to be. Yeah, the networks that can happen within any art world, those are really important and particularly when you're just first finding your footing and just having a chance to be at the right place at the right time often enough where people start to understand what you're doing that's a big part of it yeah and and especially in in Johannesburg or South Africa where there just is very little tradition of collaborative printmaking um so that so that was that was really nice just to like sort of be there and be there every day and artists would come by and see stuff that other artists were doing and you know, that that's, um, that really helped. So at what point did you move to the current yeah. facilities that you have now? And why did you make the move to someplace more rural? And then also, can you tell us about what are the current facilities that you have? How have things grown since that offset lithopress in your dad's garage? Because Tamara did work with rural projects, um, she didn't want to live in the city. And when I started the studio, she said, okay, she'll come back to Johannesburg for a year. And um, like 13 years later, we finally moved out of Joburg. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, that, that happens. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, she, she carried on doing the, the projects that she was interested in, but she would, she would be home for a bit and then she'd be away for a few weeks or, you know, she would kind of commute in and out of the city. Um, through those 13 years. But when, when our kids were born, um, we kind of realized like once we put them in a school in Johannesburg, we would stay there. And um, 
And so we started to look for places outside of the city where we could be, where we were in a rural area. And um, yeah, we, we sort of drew a kind of a three or four hour radius around Johannesburg and looked in different parts of the country. And the, the area we're in at the moment, I mean, it's just, it's not as rural as Tamar would have liked it to be, but <laughs> it has access to some schools and a reasonable bookshop. And an airport has actually been built since we moved down here, but uh, artists can fly in if they want to. It's, it's, it's a pretty good balance between a rural place, but access to whatever one needs to make a print shop work. Well, yes, I'm actually really excited to talk about the sustainable living aspect of what you do out there. But yeah, now that I think about it, of course, one of the things that you probably aren't growing in the garden yet is ink and paper and that kind of thing. So you must need some access to city life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I think we we are all just so connected as a global thing in terms of technologies and supplies and plates and paper and um you know the, i i think there's no way not to be part of that and still be current or still be relevant but um but yeah i mean we i think we strike a good balance between being in a in an open place where we've got space to do what we want to do and the kids are able to do their stuff growing up and um, and not be like in that city thing of going to shopping malls. And uh, so, what are the facilities like now? I'm really curious to hear more kind of more details about that and all the presses that you have. Sure. So, so when we moved down, we, I mean, the new studio we built was three times the size of the space we had in Joburg, and it was really fun to design and build a studio to be exactly how we wanted it to be. And we. We have two Tackage presses. Both of them are hand-operated. We have one Van der Kook letterpress proofing press that we do some letterpress printing on. Not a lot, but we, you know, there's, there's something really beautiful about that embossed into the paper quality that letterpress can give. And we actually bought that press to do book work on. So over the years, we've done a, a few books that we felt were relevant that needed to be published. And, um, and it's been nice to, to have letterpress to do that. Uh, we have our own plate graining machine. We, yeah, I mean, it's, that's, we have about a hundred stones. Um, most of them are fairly small, kind of A3 size, but we do have a few big ones as well. And we have a little guest house attached to the studio where artists can stay while they're working. So they, they usually come for about two weeks and, you know, they, they make themselves at home. They have their own space, their own kitchen lounge area. And they just come into the shop every day and we work in collaboration to try and kind of do what they want to do. Yeah. We love that the fact that, that we don't miss out completely on that kind of cultural, interesting life of interesting people because artists come down and stay with us and we you know, we share meals and we chat and there's a lot of a lot of growth that happens in that space. So one project that you mentioned in passing, but it actually was something I wanted to talk to you about specifically, was the books that you produce. And one project in particular, which I am afraid I am definitely not going to know how to say. No, that's okay. <laughs> is it Kowaya? It's Kokoa. Kokoa. It's, a, it's like a sort of a double click sound. I mean, I'm probably not even doing it correctly. Um, uh. the, so the, the, one of the projects that Tamar was working with was um, a sand art project in the northwestern part of Botswana um, called Kuru. And um, it, it's actually a project that was started by the Dutch Reformed Church. And um, they, they hired Tamar as a coordinator for the art project. And they they had a project which is which is still going and going strong with um, providing a studio space for artists who want to paint. And the kind of philosophy behind the project was just to provide the materials and let the artists do whatever they wanted to do. And and so while Tamar was working there, she said to me, "Well, why don't you come up and make some prints with these artists?" And I I mean I loved the work, I I loved the imagery, and so I. The first project we did with them, I took my press and 
a bunch of stones and some metal plates up to Botswana and actually worked in their studio for about a month. And uh, we we did some, some really beautiful prints together. And sort of growing out of that, we talked about doing an artist's book and a folk story. And, um, and so Tamar kind of over the next while, she talked to them and they were willing to do it. And um, they there was a cultural center attached to the art project. And so the cultural center workshopped folk stories and got well-known storytellers throughout the district to kind of tell their stories. And from that, the artists made a short list and eventually settled on the one story, Kukoa, which is it's, I mean, it's a, a heroine who goes through all these adventures, but they're, their stories are cyclical. They're not like Western folktales that have a beginning and a middle and an end with a moral at the end. They, the stories kind of start and they go on and then they just seem to end or they seem to restart and there's no, they, we, they don't have that like Western structure yeah. to them. Yeah, that that narrative arc that yeah. every story is yeah. expected to have, right? The, the climax and then the moral and then it's over. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, so and then and then there were two linguists working with Kuru who were busy translating the Nairo language into a written language from just being a spoken language, and so they were they were they were really helpful in writing down the story for us um, and getting all the um, orthography correct with the right sort of how to draw or write the click sound in the correct way. So the so, so the story is printed letterpress, but both with narrow and English kind of mixed in from one page to the next. And there's a nice little paragraph at the front of the book that says this, you'll see that there's more English text than narrow text in the book because some things needed to be explained to English readers that would be obvious to narrow readers. And, and that paragraph is only printed in the narrow language. It doesn't, it doesn't come in, in English. And, and yeah, so, so yeah, we, I went up, um, again, I, I took plates up and the artists did like just beautiful colored lithographs, which we proofed on the etching press. They have their own etching press in, the, in, their, in their building. So we, we proofed the litho plates on the etching press, which actually worked quite well. And, um, and then we went back, took all the plates back to the studio in Johannesburg and printed the images lithography and the text letterpress. And then the binding was done with goatskin, which was bound by a project which has since closed down. But it was also within the Kuru kind of umbrella of organizations that, that tanned goats uh, or tanned goat skins. So they used a, a plant called Elansboinki, which has got a naturally very high tannin content that grows in the Kalahari. And they, the, the goatskin was tanned, vegetable tanned with the Elansboinki. And so we managed to get enough goatskins of a reasonable size that we could bind the book in goatskin. And they they all are everyone is a bit different. Some of the skins are a bit scratched from the goats on the thorns and some are like rougher and some are really soft. And I think I drove the bookbinder quite insane because he really didn't like these rough, irregular, slightly thick, slightly thin skins that we gave him. Um, but but he did it. He he did a beautiful job. And just to circle back for a second, could you speak a little bit more to the printing etching on a litho press? Because I know it's done, but I don't know that everyone listening knows how it's done. It's it's exactly the same as printing printing litho. I mean, we we put the plates on the bed of the etching press, and then we put a um, a sheet or two of of brown mount board kind of card you know just that like gray binders board you know that's um you know like a millimeter and a half thick and just instead of using the, the felt blanket we just use that that gray board and um I, we would have put a little piece of acetate or something to stop the moisture from the plate getting into the board but then just run it through the etching press and um yeah it printed it printed absolutely fine i remember the the gray boards did delaminate after after some impressions i i don't know whether it was five or ten they were kind of the the pressure of the rollers would cause the boards to delaminate and then we would just take new ones oh uh, that's really interesting yeah okay well i know you're gonna 
chat with Tim after in Shop Talk. So I'm sure he'll have quite a few more detailed questions um, that I couldn't come up with about that. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. Because um, I want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about the green living that you do. And it's something that I think is a big part of, of your studio, and you've got a great introductory video all about it on your website. And it's actually really quite inspiring, all the ways that you're managing to have a sustainable printing studio out there. I mean, I think it's a journey rather than a than a destination. And I mean, I, I know there are other people who are doing a much better job as running a green studio than I am. I've looked at like using cooking oil for cleaning up and, and stuff like that. And I just can't do it. You know, I, <laughs> um, so, so I'm, I'm still using what, what we buy is, we call it roller wash, but it's, I mean, basically the same as lithotine. But, but I, you know, I kind of, I use it because it works well. And the, the most important thing is still to get really good prints. And so, so I don't want to compromise on anything that is not going to work as well as the methods we have that we know we can rely upon. But, you know, like, like we buy 25 liters of, of roller wash, maybe once a year, maybe once every 18 months. And if I get in my car and I drive up to Johannesburg, I burn up two or three times that of petrol. So, like, you, one's got to look at these things in terms of perspective. And I know it's a solvent and perhaps it's not as green as it can be, but it's really a very small part of, of the bigger picture. Yeah, that is a really significant point that I'd love to just linger on for a moment because I really think that people do get kind of bogged down in this ideology or this idea of perfection and they think, oh, I have to be perfectly green or it's not good at all and I have to get rid of my lithotine. But then they're not doing things like organizing a carpool at their work or eating less meat, right? These things that actually you know, can produce larger effects because they get bogged down in the details. Yeah. And and every decision one makes to just kind of like try and weigh those things and say like, is this better this way or better that way? And and I think as as things change over the years, we're going to be forced to change whether we like it or not. I mean, I just, I see it now. So many supplies that we took for granted as being available, you can't get anymore. And um, and so you just do without and you figure out a way that works better when you have to. I mean, one of the things that 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 we do is I don't have any nitric acid in the shop. And and I've worked I worked out that actually phosphoric acid, which is a food grade acid, works just as well or better for etching stones than nitric acid does. And it's much safer and it's not as volatile and it's not as toxic and and that's like a really easy decision to make. Like, okay, we can get rid of nitric acid just like that, and it's not going to compromise anything. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, – I think a big part of the green thing too was having children. And they, you know, they go to school and they kind of like come home with questions. And and one, one needs to be able to answer them with like complete integrity. Yeah, and so I think – you know, like they come home from school and they say, "We are today is International Turn Off the Lights Day," and why are the lights still on? And, and you know, okay, <laughs> so so uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I because I I know that you have other things going on there as well, just really even beyond the studio. You know, you've got a little hydroelectric dam, you've got bees there that can be your buddies and help pollinate things. All that stuff, it's just fun to do. I mean, it's like, they're like hobbies. There's, um, you know, if I'm not in the print shop, pretty much any weekend I'll be in the garden doing something. Um, and all that stuff, it's it's just fun. It's, um, I mean, I know, I know it's green. And I think I think the vegetable garden is actually the, the most successful of all the projects because it's it's so easy to do and it makes such a big difference. Like at, at the moment, I'm... Um, 
all into biochar and making my own charcoal and putting that into the vegetable garden. Um, and it's, but it's interesting and there's so many layers of stuff. I mean, it's very much like printmaking. You, there are so many variables of things you can try and different ways of doing things that make it fun. Yes. Was there something there too about the fact that you're making charcoal on site that, that your artists can use? Oh, yes. So part of, I mean, part of the charcoal thing was we met a guy, he was actually the, the priest at the kid's school. Um, but he, I think he wanted to be a welder more than a priest. Oh. And, um, <laughs> he, he was making these charcoal ovens and, um, and he, he called me in the parking lot one day and said like, he wants to test out a charcoal kiln that he's made. And he'd heard that we had a big area with bamboo and he heard bamboo makes the best charcoal. And could he bring it and test it on our property? And so one Saturday, he just arrived with this thing and set it up and made a fire underneath it. And I think he was he was wanting to make charcoal really for, for using for cooking. And then in passing, I was talking to William Kentridge, and he was lamenting how hard it was to get nice, big, chunky pieces of charcoal. And so I kind of like, well, hang on a minute, there's this... <laughs> <laughs> drum sitting in my garden. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That, 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 I have someone you should meet. <laughs> yeah, Reverend Stone. We Reverend Stone actually just left the charcoal kiln in the garden. It sat there for like four years, and then and then my son Simon started becoming interested in making charcoal with it for drawing, and so he experimented with different materials to make into charcoal. And one of the materials that he found was a swamp cypress tree which grows in the south of america um like like in the sort of florida area and it's it's a really lightweight wood and we found a swamp cypress that had been cut down in a public park and we loaded it all in the car and took it home and rammed it into this charcoal machine and it made the most beautiful soft dark black drawing charcoal and um and Simon's just been doing it since then. I mean, it's been quite a few years now. And um, he's made charcoal out of dozens of different plants and um, different weeds and, and yeah, different thicknesses and hardnesses and softnesses. And, and, it's, and he gives it away to artists and friends. And, um, but, yeah, and a lot of it goes to William who uses it in his drawings. Yeah, I guess when I was saying, like, you can't make ink on site yet, you're partway there, you can make the charcoal. And, the, I mean, it's so easy to make as well. You go into an art supply store and there's a little box of charcoal and, you know, you, you can make it in, like, wheelbarrow size loads out of wood that's <laughs> going to be just wasted, you know, so... Yeah, yeah, uh, give it a go, totally. Yeah, I know, making charcoal is really easy. You just need a big fire... And you seal up the drum underneath it. And, and yeah, that's, I mean, you just got to get it really nice and hot. And you get beautiful charcoal out of it. Well, I'm hoping we can talk about, too, the collaborative work that you do. Because I do know that you work with some artists outside of South Africa. And so how do you find them? How do you connect with them? How do they come to see you um, and do all of these things, which, of course, we were able to do in the before time and hopefully we'll be able to do it soon again but yeah how did that work not a lot of the people we work with are international artists we we're really focused on the south african art world but the artists that have worked with us have been i mean people that that we've met through being a tamarind and and we've had we've had some international artists just phone us up and say can i come by and make a print and um and that's but that's been absolutely fine too but yeah i mean it's it's just through the network and being there, I guess. I mean, just the artists call you up, and you, if you're if you're available, you know, then it works out. If um, yeah. yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, I know you've also been doing a project long distance that you've kind of been forced into making long distance because of COVID, like a lot of people. Um, but yeah, can you please talk about? what the project is and also how you're working on long distance printing, collaborating, all that stuff. It's been, it's been over a year now that we haven't had an artist working in the studio. And um, some of the projects we had already started them by the time the COVID lockdown came um, and others have been initiated since then. But 
it's, I mean, it's, all of them have been with artists who have worked with us once or more in the past. And so they understand the process of what's involved. And most of them, it's, it's been like, I've, I've driven to their studios, taken materials to them and set them up and then kind of just left them to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it sounds like that contact-free delivery that you yeah. always see on the apps in the Bangkok. Ask your driver for contact-free delivery, but with prints. Uber prints. Yeah. But, and, but what, what we found actually, which has been quite surprising, is that at least during the lockdown period, artists really put a lot more time into doing the drawing than they are usually able to do. So, I mean, over the past few years, I've been finding it, artists are busier and busier and they're, they're sitting in the studio and they're drawing, but their phone is ringing or they're checking email. And, and often like an artist will say, okay, I'm done, etch that stone. And you know they're not done. Whereas with the lockdown, once I, I had the stuff packed up and couriered up to me to to start making plates and um, processing things, I was just blown away by how much work they had put into it. And and we've we've done a couple of really beautiful prints, and I think partly because of the lockdown. I mean, it's yeah, and I never expected that. I. I just thought, oh, we're going to manage to keep going, but it's going to be much harder. But, you know, like, like it's almost as good as having the artist there in the studio because you can, you can roll up a plate and you can pull a proof and then you can take a pic and you can send it to the artist on WhatsApp and say, do you think that works? And should this yellow change in tone? And, and you, can, you can sort of have this ongoing collaboration just through using a phone. And, um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's not quite as good as having the artist there in the studio throughout the whole process, but it's, uh, it's, it's completely doable. Yeah. I don't know if you followed it all, this project Mixed Grit. It's by Gregory Santos. And how it works is that he takes advantage of the fact that in the United States, they have flat rate shipping. I don't know, maybe they have flat rate shipping other places, but in the States, they have this, the U.S. Postal Service will say, if it's under 70 pounds, it ships for a flat rate, you know, no matter how heavy it is. So he's actually been sending around the country these cute little tiny baby lithostones. Um, and it's the kind of thing where people were saying, that's impossible. You can't do that. And Gregory was kind of like, why not? I'll just pay the flat rate fee. So he's been doing it long distance with the stone, but it sounds like with the plates, it would probably make things even easier. And you don't even have to stick with a smaller scale for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, and, and in fact, that isn't even um, something that's completely new because I remember when I went to a ta that Tamarind Symposium a few years ago, there was a printer there who talked about stones coming up from Mexico on the bus um, that he was printing and like, like in the 1960s. Uh-huh. Um, and they and yeah, there was a bus that would run from Mexico up to the states, and and there was a system where you could have something like as heavy as a stone added to the luggage area, and and he they, they would bring these stones up and down, and the artist was in Mexico, and they printed for him in the states. Oh, that is funny. Mm. Well, yeah, it's it's what you were talking about, like the the innovation is art of artists. You know, when something disappears, we'll figure out something else. You know, it's we. We have to make prints, and we will figure out a way to do that. And sometimes those ways are, are, are better than you would have done it before. In the bit of time we have left here for our chat, before I, I pass you on to Tim for Shop Talk, I'd like us to talk a little bit about investing in prints, because you have a section of your website dedicated to this, so I know it's something that's of interest to you. And we've already talked a little bit about the longevity that prints can have. But this is something that I'm always keen to talk about. You know, I'm in the business of selling art in my day job outside of podcasting job. And this side of the whole art ecosystem is kind of fascinating to me. So I'd really love to hear your thoughts on it sort of generally. But then also, maybe if you could speak to print collecting and the profile that that practice has in South Africa. Yeah, sure. Um I mean, so so I think I think I'm as 
puzzled and amazed by it as you are. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I, I know when I started making prints for artists, it wasn't, that was always like a possibility, <laughs> but it was never, um, yeah. it was never a given. Uh-huh. And um, I mean, the motivation was always to make something that you thought had cultural significance rather than something that had investment value. But I mean, we've, we've found over the years, a lot of artists have done prints with us and they get launched and sold and they sell well and they come up on auction a few years later and they sell for much higher prices than anyone ever expects them to. I like to think that we kind of focus on the quality of it and the rest of that side of stuff is pretty much out of our hands. Like it's, it's up to people in galleries and museums and auction houses to take it from there and see what the, what the investment value of it is. But, um, yeah, but there is definitely an investment value in it. Uh, I, um, but I really find it hard to figure out how it works and um, <laughs> what makes a, a particular print a better investment than another. Yeah, that's something I always tell people is that you have to buy what you love because if the artist market suddenly crashes and it becomes worth the paper it's printed on, you're still going to be happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. And no one can take that away from you. You know, if you buy from a place of joy and a place of genuine interest and the desire to support something existing in the world because you want to see more of it. Yeah. yeah. That's the very yeah. best yeah. place you, and reason that you can buy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's really as a, as a publisher, I mean, I think that's, that's the only thing that we can add to it is 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 to do it as well as we can and and try and do something that that has what we believe is a cultural or aesthetic significance and and if the market picks up on it and sees it as an investment that's brilliant that's really interesting to hear you say it because it's actually the advice that i give to collectors you could also give to artists and publishers and printmakers that idea that as long as you print something that you truly are proud of, that can't be taken away either. As long as, you know, you've made something and you're like, this is the truest expression of this collaboration. This is the best version of this print. If the marketplace never picks up on it, it never triples in value in 10 years or kind of whatever people are hoping that happens, you know, you yourself will know that I did the best and you can't take that away. And, and I, I do think it's, it's a collaboration that, that extends beyond like just the printer and the artist. The, one of the, one of the um, people we've worked with for many years says it's, a, it's like a three-legged stool um, this guy's a, a, and um, he used to have a gallery, but he's now kind of a curator as a freelance thing. But he he says um, the artist and the gallery and the collector each make up a leg of the stool, and the, the, all three are needed to to kind of keep it good and solid and level. And and uh, you know that I think the market is as important as the artist or the or the print shop or the gallery. You know, I think. Um, I think they all work together in concert, even if not intentionally. Yeah, yeah. And as I we would keep saying it, that is calling it this ecosystem, but I think that's really accurate because all parts of it are intertwined and interconnected and dependent on one another. And yeah, and before we, you know, maybe in the future we're going to be in some kind of utopia where everyone can grow their own vegetables and artists are just going to be given a stipend to make because of the cultural significance of the products and printers will just be given paper. But yeah, until we're there, we have to rely on the capitalist ecosystem a bit to keep the <laughs> lights on and keep ink in the tins and paper on the presses and yeah, all of it. And I think the capitalist ecosystem also helps inform where the value is. I mean, it's, it's not that, that one only does things because that's where one can make money out of them, but but it it helps to kind of 
affirm that what you're doing is the right thing. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a way where you get direct feedback on what you're making and feedback in numbers. Yeah. And and so you can see kind of not in real time but close to it how people are responding to what you're creating. Yeah. So before we sign off, um, can you please let people know where they can find you and follow all the good projects and good happenings going on over at the Artist Press? Yeah, of course. So we have a website, www.artprintsa.com. And um, that pretty much says everything about the studio and what we do. Um, we do have an Instagram page. Um, I don't do that side of it at all. Tamar, who does, <laughs> who does the marketing, she runs the website. She does the Instagram page. Um, but we, we, we certainly keep the website very up to date. And um, yeah, and all our contact details are there. You can give us a call. We would um, be happy to hear from, from anybody. That's um, lovely, yeah. Yeah, I would actually just like to take a moment to plug that website um, because there is a lot on there. And it's not just like your kind of standard, like, uh, you know, studio website where it's like, here's what we make, here's how to get in touch. You've got links. As I said, you have a lot of resources about kind of going green. Um, and all of that. You have an archive of all of the books and the collaborations and the projects that you've done. Yeah, thank you. That's, um, well, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Miranda. It was very nice chatting, and, um, and I'm looking forward to listening to a bunch of the other podcasts that you've done. I've um, listened to a few. I'm going to um, oh, yeah. get in and listen to some more, so thank you. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've heard they make good studio companions. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mark, it has been just absolutely a treat to chat with you and learn more about printmaking South Africa and the artist press. And I do hope you look us up if you ever find yourself in Bangkok or really, yeah, anywhere in Thailand. We'd love to host you. Fantastic. And if you're ever in South Africa, come by and see the studio. We'd love that. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Shivangi Larha. We'll talk about printmaking as a drawing tool, exploring the self through process, and the language barriers that keep us from finding more great artists out there in the world. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.